0: Hi, David. Thanks for coming on and talking with me today.
1: Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here, Jake.
0: So we're here to talk about your book, Life Part Two, which is a book on spiritual principles and practice for aging and the second part of life. Uh, Just for a little bit of background into you, in the book, you write about the spiritual impact of your father passing away when you were young. And you talked about in your 20s, you dove more deeply into spirituality. Can you talk a bit about about your initial journey into spiritual practice and kind of how that's led up into this book and the work that you do now?
1: Sure. Well, as as you just mentioned, um, when my father died suddenly from a heart attack when I was 13, uh, there was a conversation I had with a rabbi who came on a condolence call that planted a seed in me in relation to what I understood spirituality to be. And it had to do with an exchange in which I said to this rabbi, who was a very kind man, um, uh, why my father, right? And my thinking at the moment was, there's all these rotten people out there in the world who if anybody deserves to die, they do. And my father was a good person generous and kind Um, why my father and the response i got as i wrote about was um, david's son there are some things that god does that we just don't understand right Um, and that planted a seed that perhaps my intellect was not going to be sufficient for making sense out of this life in and of itself Um, As one spiritual teacher put it, the intellect uh, is a great servant and a lousy master. Um, We happen to live in a culture where we tend to sometimes make the intellect the master. Um, And so some years later, um, when I was in college, my junior year in college actually, um, like a lot of people my age, I was sowing oats um, with gusto basically Um, I was at Tulane University in New Orleans uh, which is known as a kind of a party and convention city Um, I had explored uh, this was the late 60s mid to late 60s early 70s so it was a wild time to be alive in certain ways in terms of what was going on culturally and uh, like a lot of young people my age I thoroughly explored what alcohol and drugs were about and what partying was about. And I thought I got pretty good at partying, I would say, in certain ways. Um, and at the same time, um, I could see that the culture had sold me, a um, kind of a bad bill of goods because I was trying all of the things I got from our culture that said those things would make me happy. And I wasn't, yeah so on my 21st birthday i was over a friend's house at his apartment and i saw a book on meditation and yoga and i asked him if i could borrow it and he said sure you know just bring it back when you're done yeah changed my life completely perhaps because i was ready in a sense i was somewhat depressed and anxious um and Uh, I made a radical turnabout and I started to teach myself Hatha yoga. I started to train myself in meditation. Uh, I noticed that I started to feel better than I had in a long, long time. And my outlook on life started to brighten. So, um, I was set on a course that I have stayed on since that time. And I'm 74 at this point. So that's quite a few years ago basically yeah um i found a yoga teacher uh, a wonderful man who came from india to new york named swami satchidananda came over to new york in about 66 and started a series of uh, meditation centers and yoga centers throughout the country Uh, and then trained as a yoga teacher after being inspired by what i saw going on in my own life and um, began to deepen my meditation practice Uh, through my last couple years of college and then in the years that followed so um, that was a real turning point and and i could sense even at the time that there was something about my father's death that did plant a seed because life i could see after a couple of years of meditation and looking inwardly at the nature of the heart and mind and looking outwardly at what was sometimes a pretty chaotic and complicated world uh, I could see that there was something fundamentally and profoundly mysterious about what we're all doing here uh, even when our intellects try to convince us otherwise Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of how it got started for me
0: yeah what are your thoughts on timing it seems like with these kinds of things with meditation spiritual practice it's like there there's, there's a certain time when it resonates and a certain time when it might just not be the right time yet. Like, mm-hmm. like, like where, you know, you, you might pick up the same book at two different points in your life and it takes on a completely different meaning because in some sense, like, like, like you talk about the intellect, these things are not, they're, they're not intellectual concepts. Like, like you you can pick up a book about intellectual concepts and you get it like regardless, but these mm-hmm. things there seems to be, it seems to be much more um, depending on your conditions and and your context at the time in your life.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Quite so, I would say. Um, I think there's a kind of intuitive wisdom that's different from what we think of as intellectual activity. Uh, And I'm not anti intellectual in any way, Mm -hmm. right? It's more a matter of um, recognizing that uh, the intellect is wonderful with linear left brain related issues yeah um at the same time the intuitive heart or mind and in in buddhism oftentimes the language for heart and mind is actually one word so it's often translated as heart hyphen mind rather than separating those the way we do in conventional western culture yeah and um and i do think there is a process of ripening of a certain kind when certain causes and conditions are present certain things unfold however it's not primarily an act of will uh, which is something our culture also tells us plays a major role in our lives sometimes it's a matter of listening and being receptive and then allowing something to unfold organically rather than uh, sort of having it be ego-driven I'm going to make this happen yeah Um, there's a classic Zen story about uh, a teacher and his student Philip Kaplow Roshi was one of the first Zen teachers in America uh, after being in a Japanese war camp uh, during World War II and uh, as the story goes one of his senior teachers came up to him and asked him um, um, about Enlightenment he and he was kind of frustrated the student with his own meditation practice excuse me and he said um, um, so so roshi which is an honorific a title right for people who are unfamiliar with the term Um, so what is enlightenment anyway right and kaplow responded to this man he said well enlightenment is an accident right and that didn't help the student tremendously he was a little nonplussed and frustrated so he said then and the student said so then why do we meditate right and Kapla looked at this man and he said because it makes you accident prone right so the the notion here is that we can do certain things to set up the causes and conditions right like you could plant a carrot seed Um, in order for that seed to grow into a healthy carrot there needs to be good soil and the right amount of sunlight and a certain amount of moisture and those are the causes and conditions that allow that seed to become a carrot that someone can find nourishment in right Um, and so the carrot seed knows what to do you don't have to yell at it or stomp your foot on the ground or tell it what to do right But you do need to do your part to tend the garden so that it has the requisite causes and conditions to become in this case an enlightened being basically Uh, so timing is like that it's listening for where are we in relation to these organic processes that sometimes the ego tries to co-opt basically Mm -hmm and this is where your contemplative practices like meditation and contemplative prayer and other inner developmental practices those are designed to help us listen inwardly to what the heart is whispering to us about what we need to do to create the causes and conditions yeah that will allow us to come to to full fruition as human beings
0: so so these these practices aren't you like making the thing happen happen it's you're kind of you're setting up an environment in a way to kind of let the thing come up itself when it's ready to come
1: exactly and then and then you learn to trust the process in the sense that it's not your business so to speak when it's going to happen right this is a little bit of the leap of faith in a committed spiritual practice because if you try too hard for the result, rather than just taking it moment to moment, you end up with what in Zen they call a gaining attitude mm-hmm. yeah and and ironically, what you can end up doing unknowingly is to reinforce the very ego structure that spiritual practices are designed to dissolve your identification with, yeah, yeah, plus you can begin to strive and over effort in a way that leads more to suffering than to happiness and well-being right especially if it's reinforced by feelings of low self-esteem which are somewhat endemic in our culture Mm -hmm. yeah and and then it becomes a self-improvement project rather than a natural unfolding
0: yeah yeah I, i i grew up playing sports and that was kind of the the culture and the approach was was mm-hmm. that that kind of like goal oriented nature of just like better 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 and it's just kind of like yeah. a hamster wheel never stops. So I, I've I've had a I've I've had a hard time with that like kind of easing off the gas and and and, and anything that I do like that's kind of immediately what I snap to. Is is that something mm-hmm. that that you struggled with when you first started with the meditation and hatha yoga? Like did did you have a hard time like just kind of letting it happen and having a little bit more patience to balance out? I guess ambition ambition in a sense
1: yeah absolutely absolutely I was also very athletic as a kid um and I don't think most of my coaches ever learned my first name frankly you know Uh, it it was a lot of pushing Mm. right um some of them were better than others about that admittedly um and they were well-intended people yeah it's it's just that um it wasn't just in sports because i grew up in a middle-class suburb that was upwardly mobile and it was also everyone should go to harvard right everyone should make x amount of money everyone should move from a small house to a bigger house from a small car to a bigger car right there there was this whole orientation of um, you've got to make something of yourself think about Mm -hmm. that phrase. (laughs) <laughs> right right as if the universe didn't know what it was doing when you were born and as if you don't have the same seed in you that that carrot plant had right and and spiritual teachings are saying essentially we we do have a seed in us of an awakened person whether we call that buddha nature or christ consciousness or Uh, when i was teaching transpersonal psychology we called it the true self capital t capital s and so forth right Um, um, most of the wisdom traditions have fundamental agreement that we have a a dual nature a a human body with a personality that lives in the relative world so to speak as it's sometimes called Um, and is vulnerable and is born on a certain day and dies on a certain day and um, oftentimes suffers and struggles at times in between right Um, and we don't want to bypass that or pretend that that's not the case Uh, at the same time the beauty of our humanity is that it also includes um what i would call a, a natural uh, tendency towards self-transcendence that is built into us as a capacity to know a different dimension of who we are All right and that's this dimension of true nature or mm-hmm. buddha nature or something else right and and when we begin to experience that not just conceptually because we read it in a book but on the level of what teachings call realization yeah we start to see the small self, the egoic self, um, as a subsystem of something much, much vaster, right? And that's where that ultimate mystery comes into play that I got introduced to at 13 and why this learned rabbi who had a lot of life experience and study about spiritual matters could say to me, he didn't understand either why my father died and he, and yes it didn't feel fair to me as a 13-year-old kid mm-hmm. right and all he could say was i don't understand either in so many words yeah right um but that bit, that larger dimension of our nature uh is is fundamentally something as you mentioned a little earlier the intellect can understand what that is about when we read a good well-written spiritual book Um, the process of spiritual maturation involves um, taking those concepts on the spiritual level as a starting point for a movement toward what teachings call realization right Um, so when you realize something that's an integrated kind of knowing that transforms you in a a way that's different than what conceptual knowing can do however that doesn't mean conceptual knowing isn't valuable Mm -hmm. it's wonderful it's often the starting point when I read that book at 21 about yoga and meditation a whole new vision of what I was on earth to do um, took root in me and and you know all these years later um, there's still a, an essential vision of that sort that rings true to me
0: uh, well you write about when you were younger you always felt intuitively that that the things that people were were generally valuing that you, you didn't find those to be as valuable as as they did but you would kind of had bought in a little bit and would like just kind of kind of like entertain those things w- mm-hmm. when did you or i guess how did you allow yourself to Follow your intuition more and be I guess go against the the grain like how did you allow yourself to trust that voice mm-hmm.
1: well, I think a lot of it had to do with leaving home and going away to college uh, at which point the influence of that um, middle class environment and school system and the predominant views that I grew up with um, lost a little bit of their grip Mm -hmm. Um, and i started reading and studying and understanding there were lots of other ways to look at the world than to be somewhat addicted to power money and fame essentially which the culture held up as on a pedestal of some sort yeah um and i i remember when i was in high school yeah it was in high school um one of the people who was very well respected in the general community um, was the father of a couple of friends of mine who was the president of this elite country club that a lot of people aspired to be invited to join yeah Uh, and there was a certain point at which quite sadly this man took his own life committed suicide yeah And that shook the community in an extremely powerful way, even though it was mostly discussed behind closed doors, right? Because this was a man who had attained a lot of the things people were aspiring to attain. You know, had the car and the wealth and the home and the lifestyle that went with the notion of success in our culture and chose to end his life. Um, and it didn't last that long. The community kind of reasserted itself pretty quickly. I didn't, I noticed and continued to notice when I went off to college that, um, he had it all and somehow still, still felt so unhappy he chose to exit, you know? So, um, in college, I, i i studied and i read a lot i read jung's autobiography which i loved a wonderful book called memories dreams and reflections i started reading on yoga and meditation Um, i started practicing quite regularly and and then when i found a teacher um, it was like a like an alternate culture right because material acquisition was not particularly highly valued in a, in a yoga community where people mm-hmm. were aspiring to become conscious loving and wise human beings right um and and i've never really looked back uh, and, and here again i'm not anti-material i think it's wonderful to have the the appropriate material level of comfort and to meet our needs and to have the things we need yeah um I just don't see those as sources of the kind of happiness I'm most interested in. Mm -hmm. And I've always found that spiritual teachings speak more directly and effectively to that interest.
0: Yeah. So how how did this path that, that you started taking at 21 lead into you writing this book about aging? Well,
1: that's an interesting question. Um, I always liked old people. First of all, you know, when I was young, my maternal grandmother, who was a very simple Russian peasant, um, um, came over to the United States on the boat when she was, um, I grew up in the Jewish tradition and because of the pogroms and the persecution, my relatives were chased out of Europe and Russia. Um, and, um, she was the only adult in my early life who did not seem to be pushing me in the way we were talking about before Um, my parents were well intended and yet they lived in a kind of middle-class jewish subculture in which the common understanding was the way to a better life was education Mm -hmm. so there was a lot of pressure about grades and what college to go to and there were moments like coming home in sixth grade um, to talk to my mother about my report card, and which was all A's and a B. Right, the whole conversation was one question. Right, what's this B about? Right, and that's a little bit like what you were saying about your coaches. Mm-hmm. Right, still wasn't good enough. Right. right, which I interpreted as not lovable. Right. i I wasn't being appreciated i wasn't being seen all that mattered was my performance yeah um so uh, when i hung out with my grandmother which i enjoy doing and she would babysit for my brother and i when we were young things of that sort um the moment i walked in the room her face just lit up right and sometimes she would say warm comforting affectionate things but a lot of times it was just her presence said to me i'm so glad you're alive and she was so affirming right and she seemed to understand the difference between doing and being in a way that most of the people i grew up with didn't because people were more like human doings and and there was this drivenness yeah right um that I found really tiresome,
0: yeah.
1: but everybody seemed to be hypnotized to do that. Not my grandmother. She had a little garden in her backyard. She used to hum to herself when she sort of picked things in the garden. She was relaxed. She seemed pretty happy. And given you know what she'd experienced in, in Russia, actually what is now Belarus, um, I could see why she was happy now looking back right Mm -hmm. so um that gave me a sense that uh, there's another way to be Um, she she used to play cards with a group of women and i would sometimes hang around when they would do that you know and um, find my way to the candy dish on a regular basis stuff like that right (laughs) Um, uh, but that planted a seed Um, and then also um, when i was young um, my dad was not the only person who died suddenly and unexpectedly. Um, we had a lot of genetic coronary heart disease in the family. Uh, so he had four brothers, uh, all of whom all of whom died in a similar manner, at pretty young ages. I mean, my dad was fifty when he died. Um, uh, he was his business partner was one of his older brothers, uh, and his business partner's son died at 49 from a heart attack. Uh, and my dad, my uncle Irving, who was my dad's business partner, died at a fairly young age and so forth. And, um, and I seem to have some kind of karma associated with people dying, right? Uh, one of my closest friends from high school died at 28. And um, uh, a, a girl that I dated in high school died at 26. And even though we weren't together when those deaths happened, um, I found myself drawn to hospice work mm-hmm. in my late 20s. Partly, I think, to deal with unfinished grief and psychological and emotional business that needed to be addressed. And partly because Ram Das and Stephen Levine had become two very important teachers to me. Um, and both of them were doing work with dying people. Uh, Ram Dass had started a project in about 74, the Hanuman Foundation Dying Center in Santa Fe. Um, and both Ram Dass and Stephen at different times said that of all the different spiritual practices they had done, working with dying people seemed to be the most powerful and transformative. Being at the bedsides, engaging with these people yeah. in some cases being present when someone physically died and so forth right and that inspired me between my personal history and people who i really respected and whose teaching i trusted uh, so i started volunteering for hospice when i was in my late 20s uh, and uh, most of those people that i would work with were elders right uh, and there again I, I could see how comfortable i was with elders and um, that they weren't as driven in many cases yeah um, and so i started to do that work and i saw that uh, in our culture the reason the hospice movement took off the way it did which was pretty radical actually um was because Uh, we didn't honor the spiritual significance of the dying process and we had medicalized it Mm -hmm. to too great of a degree too many people were dying in icus or too many people were having their lives extended when they didn't want their lives extended yeah and so forth right um so uh I, i could see there was a lot of unnecessary suffering going on in our culture because of our perspective our view of the dying process yeah. um, so for example the first hospice in the united states was in new haven connecticut in 1974 right uh, some nurses had gone over to england to a place called saint christopher's hospice and observed what was going on and they came back and they started a hospice in new haven connecticut um when I later got involved with hospice work first as a volunteer and then as a hospice director, first at Ramdas's Dying Center for a while, and then in Las Cruces, New Mexico, it was 1983. Right. So in less than 10 years. Yeah. Um, uh, the movement went from one hospice in New Haven to in 1983 when I got hired in Las Cruces. There were 1300 hospices in various stages of development
0: that's crazy in the united
1: states right so that's an that tells you it's an idea whose time had come Mm
0: -hmm.
1: yeah okay so then if you fast forward to some years later um uh uh i i met a teacher who i talked about in the book rabbi zalman shakter shalomi who most of the students and friends Uh, and colleagues would call Reb Zalman Um, and he was basically saying we've got the same problem with our view of aging that we had with death and dying right that our very perspective our view our value stance and the messaging that we put out in our culture about aging causes an enormous amount of unnecessary psychological and emotional suffering that tragically has a a dimension of being a self-fulfilling prophecy to it right right yeah so if you start getting messages from an early age that aging is bad news it's all about diminishment and you see people ridiculed because they're older in tv shows or in, in magazine articles or books that you read and Uh, Characters are portrayed in a certain way, right? There's a way in which you're likely to grow up fearing aging. Uh, Understandably so, right? Because you've been told that your life is going to go downhill from anywhere between 39 and 59. You're going to start diminishing. uh, Your experience will be one of diminishment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the fact of the matter is it's just not true right both in terms of what we see in indigenous cultures where the the elders are considered to be the lineage holders and the wisdom keepers and the people who can see seven years into the future what's best for the society or for the community yeah because they're they're not so urgently caught up in paying their mortgage or the immediacy of things right Um, um so uh, I, I started to see when I met Reb Zalman, uh, he came to Naropa University when I was still on the faculty in the graduate transpersonal psychology program. And, and we just uh, had an immediate affinity. Um, he was a close friend of Ram Dass, so I'd heard about him uh, quite a bit over the years. Uh, and we just really connected. And um, his vision for a number of years had been we need a new paradigm for aging in this culture. It's time for a paradigm shift. Um, and that, I, ju- I just resonated with that vision, hundred and ten percent. Yeah. And and I do to this day, quite honestly. Yeah. That's what led me to write the book.
0: Yeah, you talk about the the archetype of the wise elder. So that, like, these these principles are kind of your your guidebook for doing that. In terms of spirituality,
1: uh huh, yeah. This is one map. I wanted to share. You know, I was coming up on seventy when I decided to write the book, and it was somewhat of a bucket list item because I'd never trained as a writer or thought of myself as a writer, per se. Right, um, but I had loved books since I was a toddler. Yeah, I've uh, I've been an avid reader my whole life and. Um, and I realized that there, there'd been a part of me that wanted to write a book for many years, but I didn't, you know, as an unpublished author, you don't get much of an advance. Right. Um, it's not an easy career to make your way into. Um, and I was used to do being a stand-up teacher and speaker and presenter, quite comfortable in the realm of teaching directly. Um, and yet there had been this desire to see if I could offer to other people, what some of the authors i had benefited from had offered to me um, and i was also um, approaching 70 so that uh, aging was no longer theoretical to me right when i met rabzalman i was 45 so i was smack in midlife you know we were raising a daughter my wife and i and um and I used to apologize when I first started to teach for the Spiritual Eldering Institute and I'd say, you know, I'm 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 a um I'm an elder in training, basically. (laughs) Right. Because most of the people in the room were between say fifty-five and seventy-five. Right. Um but uh yeah, I you know, it just makes sense to me. And I could see that I was fortunate to be able to flush a lot of the negative programming out of my system yeah starting at 45 instead of starting later in life because that programming goes in deep yeah quite quite deeply actually uh, and even when you intellectually can see beyond it that doesn't mean that those messaging that those messages aren't still influencing you
0: so for the seven principles that you use for this book just to go over them we have embracing the mystery choosing a vision awakening intuition committing to inner work suffering effectively serving from the heart and celebrating the journey how, how did you come upon these and put these together to provide this the structure of the book and the way that, that you approach uh conscious aging
1: I think it was a combination of uh, life review, as it's sometimes called, looking back at my own experience, uh, and then combining that with my own study of other perspectives of psychological and spiritual development, uh, and and yeah, really trying to articulate what I had seen myself go through in the process of. Um, moving in the direction of um, becoming uh, an older person who hopefully wasn't just older but was also a bit wiser right Um, and so embracing the mystery as i mentioned earlier uh, arose out of that first experience when my father died and um and i began to see that um there were there were constantly aspects of mystery in my life when i looked deeply at what was happening in my life there was a superficial dimension that the rational mind could make sense of and and that was all fine and i needed to be able to function on the level of ordinary life and managing a life Uh, however the deeper meaning of life seemed to be filled with and surrounded by this quality of mystery that's often talked about in the mystical traditions and it's something that that we can only really ultimately know through becoming one with it um, and that's why in buddhism we talk a lot about what we call um, beginner's mind for example a mind that's open that's not so filled with concepts that they Um, determine everything you see and experience and perceive because you're looking through these mm, light green glasses or whatever it is right um and uh and then particularly when i started to work with dying people doing hospice work sitting at the bedside of someone watching someone take a last breath Um, sure i understood the biology of a dying physical body However, the experience of being in a room and watching someone breathe in and breathe out, and, and feeling this incredible sense of where did they go? Yeah. Or what just happened? Right. Um, where, what changed? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and words were often inadequate, um, so that there was just a sense of awe and a profound sense of mystery and amazement yeah um likewise why certain things happen the way they do sometimes it made sense but sometimes it made no sense whatsoever right All right especially when you're looking into your future at a from a younger age um, one of the tasks of becoming a, a wiser human being as you age is at some point to begin to look back at your life and see how things connect how one thing led to the next. And that can sometimes be seen and understood looking back in a way that can't be understood looking forward, yeah. Um, So the mystery was quite apparent to me and rather than fearing it or seeing it as an inadequacy in my ability to understand life, I came to see it as a central ingredient in a spiritually oriented life. And that my task was as i put it in the the chapter title to embrace the mystery and in a sense kind of bow to it and open myself to it and in some ways become one with it become a statement of it yeah um uh, so so that naturally led to so then how do i proceed in my life right Um, and that's where this idea of choosing the vision came into play because I realized there were many different um, maps or visions I could have chosen for my life, Yeah. Right? I, I could have stayed with the vision I grew up with in that upwardly mobile middle-class suburb and tried to be a success in, say, the business world, right? And to earn X amount of money or to accumulate certain possessions. That's a vision, um, may or may not be conscious. Yeah um but I think for people who want to awaken spiritually being conscious of what vision is guiding their life is really really helpful yeah uh and and we have different visions um that have similar goals and ultimate goals but you know if you look at the different religions and the different spiritual paths and forms of practice you talk about the Bodhisattva in Buddhism you know and. You talk about sainthood and contemplative Christianity, right? You talk about a tzaddik in the Jewish tradition, the Jewish mystical tradition. And um, um, sometimes you just talk about what the Dalai Lama called um, cultivating a good heart, just being a good human being, right? And, and most of these visions have to do with actualizing our best human qualities and bringing them to fruition while at the same time letting our unwholesome and our unwise human qualities atrophy in a certain way so Han uses the image of watering seeds yeah right Um, are you going to water the wholesome seeds the skillful seeds that allow you to be happier and be an instrument of happiness in the world or are you going to water the unwholesome seeds of competition and comparison and aggression and Wanting to win, meaning somebody has to lose. Right, right, right. Um, um, so, so that came naturally, and I saw there were all these different visions, and I developed an early interest in interspiritual studies, right, and what used to be called comparative religion. But my my passionate interest was what's the common ground yeah. that all these great authentic wisdom traditions share. Um, so, so, you know, once I recognize that I have to choose a vision, right, how do I choose it? Well, that's where the third chapter came in, awakening intuition, right? It's not a choice like we were talking about earlier that is ex- exclusively intellectual. It's a choice that comes from some, what the Quakers call the still small voice within, a, a kind of inner guidance principle, Yeah. You know? Um, and intuition is one of the most amazing human capacities i think we have yeah frankly uh, albert einstein was famously quoted at one point as, as saying you know i did not discover the fundamental laws of the universe with my rational mind it, it it was more like he became one with the universe and he saw how it all is yeah and then when he came back into his Separate small self, he had the gift of intellect to articulate what he had become one with right yeah right um, so intuition the only thing that's as amazing to me as intuition in terms of our human capacities is our capacity for self-deception right <laughs> right those two are pretty equally amazing yeah uh, and that that chapter included a whole section on how to distinguish intuition from self-deception because anytime there's desire in our system we tend to see what we want to be the case right Uh, there's a famous line in the Tao de ching that says um the truth waits for eyes unclouded by longing yeah yeah it's a Um, really good
0: one yeah yeah yeah
1: so, so that chapter, you know, um, just flowed from the the previous one, um, committing to inner work. Um, once I, once I choose a path and a vision, right, um, then I realize that um, I've got these two parts of myself. One rooted in evolutionary biology, that's all about what I call the alternate trinity, and that's me, myself, and I right um, and the part that wants to wake up that has this deep spiritual nature we talked about um, and so inner work is about just that it's about being willing to look at ourselves using uh, any of a variety of skillful methods that are available in the best aspects of western psychology these days awareness-oriented therapies of different kinds in some cases Uh, and also what the different spiritual practices offer us in the way of tools or what buddhists call skillful means yeah right for uh, understanding our motives knowing when we're coming out of self-absorption or self-interest and when we're being genuinely altruistic um, healing our past if we're carrying wounds and unfinishedness from the past like the work that i did when i got into hospice to deal with my the losses in my personal history um inner work yeah Um, and of course when we do that inner work we see where the next chapter came from which i called effective suffering Um, as i mentioned in the book uh, that comes from a a phrase that was used by um thomas merton right Um, and yeah i mean merton said he wanted to learn to suffer more effectively and that's why he became a monastic yeah. which to most people at first glance sounds completely ludicrous right but if we understand that from a spiritual standpoint suffering is functional it's not desirable i wouldn't wish it on myself or you or anybody else right but the first noble truth in buddhism appears to be true yeah that if if we're born as an incarnate human being at times we will suffer yeah um and those of us who see ourselves as spiritual practitioners choose to see the times as suffering as part of a curriculum for spiritual awakening yeah rather than something related to a punishing god or some kind of unfair treatment by the universe yeah. Um. So that's the fifth chapter in, of the seven. Um, the, the sixth has to do with when we start to learn how to work with our own suffering, we become more compassionate people, right? We become what some people call a wounded healer. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Um, it wasn't an accident that 20 years after my father died, I was directing a hospice program teaching people about grief because I had an affinity with that kind of suffering. And no one helped me with that grief much at all when I was young. Most people, well-intended people, you know, extended family members said, um, now you're the man of the family, right? Your job is to take care of your mother. Well, my brother was leaving for college a week after the funeral. I was the only other sibling. I was 13 years old. Nobody seemed to know that I might be grieving. Right. Um, so, uh, when I met my wife, for example, she was working as a physical therapist. We were living in Kathmandu in Nepal, and um, she was doing this beautiful work with disabled children's programs uh, for unicef and save the children and a variety of children's rescue organizations Um, it was only after i got to know her uh, that i found out she'd had polio as a child and she had a special connection to what it's like to have a brace on your leg which she had to have for several years when she was very young and so forth right so um so then we move into that sixth chapter which is about serving from the heart because if you've suffered effectively and you've become a wounded healer, it's a natural expression of who you are as a person at that point to reach out and try to be of benefit and to alleviate suffering in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and I guess the last chapter had emerged out of my more recent life experiences. I called it celebrating the journey. Um, And and there does seem to be a point in the process at which um, rather than being on the way to something, right, there's a sense of arriving,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right? We talk a lot about being a spiritual seeker, but we don't talk much about being a spiritual finder.
0: Yeah, it's a great phrase from the book, yeah. Right? Yeah.
1: Um, and, And I realized as I got older and My life started to feel increasingly workable and my ability to appreciate both the hard parts and the sweet parts seemed to deepen and become sweeter that i was simply feeling blessed and privileged to have a human life in the first place and uh, rather than being on the way there was some sense of each moment being this is it right Uh, this life is not a dress rehearsal in effect right even though our culture with its particular view that we talked about earlier is all about getting from here to there except there becomes a receding horizon right yeah like when are you gonna when when do you get there right and and so that last chapter was really about um that i've had the good fortune to sit with some amazing elders both as a teacher and trainer of conscious aging work and as a student of spiritual teachings um, people like Reb Zalman, who i've talked about you know died at 88 about 10 or 11 years ago and father thomas keating who uh, i had the privilege of meeting in 1981 and staying in connection with until he died at 95 in 2019 um, working with Ram Das and a couple of his organizations. Um, my primary teacher for three years in Nepal was a wonderful Tibetan teacher named Trangu Rinpoche who died at mm-hmm. 91 this past June. Um, and these people seemed not to be on their way to someplace. They were like my maternal grandmother. Yeah. They were just being. Already there. Yeah, and their doing seem to emerge naturally out of their being versus the other way around. Yeah. So, um, so that's kind of how the book unfolded. You know, it was looking at my life and and also the studies that I had done with other people and the academic work I did in terms of gerontology and my interest in the aging process.
0: Yeah. The, the book is that with me being, me being in college, it's, it's, it's a little ahead of where I am in my life right now, but I, I always find it interesting to hear these kinds of perspectives on just like these, these, this kind of arc to life that, that we have, I find very interesting. And, and I, I think it, it can be a big problem trying to like, cling to cling to youth. And that's something that we're very much, it seems like encouraged to do. Um. So uh, yeah, it, it was, it, it was, a, it was a pleasure to read. And um thanks thanks for putting that together it's it's you know ho- hopefully will help help me and uh, others my age a little down the road uh, to keep these kinds of things in in mind which i I've, i think getting these kinds of messages now is you know i i I'm, I'm making a prediction but i i it, it seems to be pretty useful to have a better perspective on just life in general rather than being like too zoomed in on i guess my my age and the phase i'm in right now um so i'll i'll have the the book linked in the description along with your website um, along with with those things do you have anything that you, that you would like to let people know about
1: uh i don't actually i'm just getting ready to write another book cool. starting uh in about a week oh nice <laughs> and uh so uh, i'm excited about that but um, my website has some of the retreats and and teaching that i'll be continuing to do and I do have a couple of weekly online groups that still meet and there's information about those on my website under weekly sangha uh and um yeah just um, happy to have a chance to connect with you and maybe yeah. we planted some seeds in you that you don't have to buy into all the messages that you're going right. to be getting as you get older about it being bad news because the truth is it's not (laughs) yeah yeah I'm not Pollyanna about the hard parts at all I mean there are hard parts for sure right um however it wasn't a piece of cake to be 14 either (laughs) right (laughs) right yeah let's face it every stage in life has difficult parts and parts to be appreciated and and I think we have the capacity to to appreciate each stage of life for what it is, and and see the whole thing as a certain kind of um, mysterious and wonderful blessing that we can learn from and share with others.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, well, thanks a lot for coming on and and being willing to share this message with with me and others. Uh, I I really appreciate your time today. Thanks a lot.
1: Mm, you're very welcome. I'm glad you reached out, Jake. Too.
0: So
1: yeah, thank you again. Thanks. Bye bye.